enter it, which means no one can sin. The other time that unclean is ever used in the Bible is in the Gospels of unclean spirits, demonic beings entering people and taking over them. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. The water is clear as crystal, sparkling, pouring out from the throne of God and of the Lamb, flowing down the middle of the city's main street. So here's the river now of Ezekiel's vision, both the blood, the water that came on Christ's side, and now this. And it's going out into all the world just like it did in Ezekiel's vision to the Dead Sea and then everywhere else. And he doesn't have to say Dead Sea first and everything else because everybody already knows that because everybody grew up on the First Testament and knows it really well, unless they're a Gentile, but then they can ask their Jewish neighbor. On each side of the river is a tree of life producing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month of the year. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. In the original Garden of Eden, there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil on one side and the tree of life on the other side. And now there's only two trees of life. The tree of knowledge of good and evil offered the opportunity to choose something other than God. God said, I will give you wisdom and you can follow me for it or you can go to the tree for wisdom. But the tree represented going somewhere other than God for the source of your wisdom and life and fulfillment and completion. Because this is what God did. In that moment, when they chose the tree of knowledge, they chose autonomy. Autonomy means self-law. And self-law, autonomy in the Bible is always bad. I know we want our kids to be autonomous, but maybe that's not the best word to use because the Bible uses the word autonomous as I will do what I want, follow my heart, make my own laws. Like the minute, like God says, pray to me and trust me. And you're like, no, I need to find a good lawyer. That's autonomy. Okay, you're trusting in something else other than God. This is autonomous. But now what God is saying is there's two trees of life. And there's no more sin in the city. Which means no one can sin. This is me. This is not the Bible. Well, I am basing it on the Bible. But this is like when Paul says, I, not the Lord, are saying this. I don't think that God is going to take your free will away and turn you into robots all of a sudden in heaven. If God wanted free choice to begin with and allowed free choice to the point to allow you to screw up the entire creation and bring sin and death and all this horridness into everything, turn on the news, all this horridness, watch history, all this horridness, then I don't think he's going to take you to heaven one day and just yank away your free choice. This is the way I see it. I see the two trees of life representing the fact that you will never be able to sin again. You will never be able to choose contrary to the will of God ever again. That's what sin is. Whatever goes contrary to the will of God. Autonomy. Self-law. I think the idea is that we were given a choice to follow Christ and we chose to follow. On this earth, in this life, you made a choice to surrender your life to Christ. You said, not my will be done, but your will be done. You gave up your life to him. You presented it as a living sacrifice to God. You made the free choice to surrender your will to Christ, to say in Jesus' name, thy will be done. But your sin nature keeps taking it back. Ultimately, deep down inside, you don't want to do what you want to do because that's why you accepted Christ. 
And that's why you're here in a Bible study right now. And this is why you pray. And it may not be easy. You may not always be perfect. But throughout your life, you're consistently seeking to be transformed and to continually offer yourself up to God. Because ultimately, you made a choice to surrender your will to God. And even though your sin nature keeps taking it back, ultimately, you want him to have it. And I think what this is portraying is that not that God automatically just takes away your free choice all of a sudden when you get to heaven, but that you already gave up your free choice willingly to God. And now you will finally be able to follow through perfectly all the time. It's not that you're going to become a robot and God doesn't allow you to make choices. It's that you already said I want to ultimately follow Christ, take up my cross and follow him, deny myself, become a living sacrifice. Thy will be done, not my will be done. And God is now going to finally make it possible for you to follow through on that every single time. But it was still your choice. And that's how you still have free choice, but you will never sin again. Is it way more complicated than that? Heck yeah, this is God. Okay, I don't understand all the theology and all the physics and all the emotions and all the mentality of it all. But I think that's the, the basic principle. And that's, that's what I believe. Okay, I'm not going to like say the Bible teaches this point. I think the ideas are there in the Bible. But I don't think God is just going to lobotomize us all of a sudden or take our free choice away and turn us into robots all of a sudden. I think we already offered it to him. And when, when that day comes, we're going to say, thank you, God. Now I can actually follow through every single time with what I wanted to do all those years ago when I first followed Christ and every year since then. Does that kind of make sense? And I think that's the idea of here of why there's no more sin. And then it says the leaves are for the healings of the nations. That's odd. There's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more crying. There's no more suffering. There's no more evil. And yet the nations need to be healed. Here's another, this is me. I don't know if this is biblical. Well, I think it's biblical. I'm not saying the Bible says, and this is what it means. I think the healing of the nations is the restoration of the earth. I really truly believe that if God put Adam and Eve in a garden that was limited space, and then he told them to expand the garden and make all of creation look like the garden, then their job was to expand the garden and to bring life fruit bearing. Now, there was already trees and bushes and all across the planet. We were told that in chapter 1. But when we get to chapter 2, we're told that the earth had no fruit-bearing plants. Because we know that fruit doesn't really grow on its own without humans. The fruit of grain and wheat and corn doesn't really grow without humans. You get teeny little pathetic sour berries and bushes unless we prune them. Apple trees and peach trees are not really that amazing unless we prune them. There's a sense that God said, I created a world that's self-sustainable, but I also created you to join me. And I'm going to make certain things in creation be dependent upon you joining in with me to produce life. And not just life, but like really nice tasting pears and peaches and wine life to refine it. And if he told them now the whole earth doesn't look like that. So go into the earth and create a fruit bearing world as you yourselves are fruitful and multiply then the idea from the very beginning was that the entire earth needed us to go out and make it look like the Garden of Eden, to work and till it. 
Now, after thousands of years, what have we done to this planet? We've asphalted the crap out of it. We have fracked it. We have polluted it. We've ravaged it with war. Chernobyl. And I think there's a certain sense where Christ is coming back and he's cleaning house. He's getting rid of all the sin and all the evil and all the death and all the suffering. But there's a garden to rebuild. There's a garden to restore. And not just what we've done to the planet, our own trauma. We have trauma from our childhood. Things that our parents have said to us, things that classmates have said to us, things that have stuck with us and our, our, our sense of self-worth. Some of us are getting therapy for it. And that I think what God is saying is, we're going to rebuild this together. You cannot eliminate. You cannot create the world without me. Only God can create the world. But I want you to join me and expand the garden. You cannot save yourself. I need to come and die on the cross for you. But I want you to join me in bringing the gospel to people. You cannot remove all evil and all sin and the devil and suffering and death all from the world. But once it's all removed, I want you to join me in repairing and renewing and restoring. Because remember, not only do we need to have a acceptance, we are the temple of God dwelling with him. Not only do we need to be secure, the wall, but we also need to have a purpose. And God is saying, join me in healing the nations. Now we are going to do therapy with our perfect therapist. And no new sin or trauma is going to come and reset us back. And now we're going to go and restore the fracking and the pollution and all the burned out places. But no new corrupt corporations are going to undo that and set us back. And then one day that planet will all be made the Garden of Eden like I wanted you to do from the very beginning. But here's me again. I think that's why the universe is big and barren. We have this natural desire in us to explore and to go out into the universe. We have this natural desire. Every sci-fi show you watch is they go out to some barren planet and they make it life-producing. But in every sci-fi show, we end up fracking the crap out of it to rip it of all of its resources again, right? And then we're like, well, we've got to find another planet because we did the same thing that we did to Earth. And I think what God is saying, I think this, I think this. I think that once we get done with the earth, we're going to be with God for all eternity. He's not going to be like, well, that work's done. Now time to sit on clouds and play harps for the rest of eternity. I think he's going to say, look, the entire universe. And we're going to go out and expand the garden. And we have this endless, barren, barren, for lack of a better word, universe for us to expand the garden into. What does that mean for being fruitful and multiply with kids? I don't know. I have no idea. You're like, well, Jesus says you won't marry. Did yeah, but that's one verse that he was talking about something completely different. I think I already mentioned this. We don't build an entire theology on one idea that was briefly mentioned to talk about something completely different. I don't know. But I think the healing of the nations is that God wants us to join him and fixing what we damage on this earth. And then once that's done, the whole universe is out there for us for all eternity. But we're not going to screw it up because we're in Christ. 
Verse 3, And there will be no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, meaning their minds will be completely given over to God in devotion and obedience. Night will be no more, and they will not need the light of the lamp, lamp and the light of the sun, because the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever. Now notice what is getting repeated more often than anything else. The Lamb and God are there with us, and they are our light. What is the most important thing in all this? We're with God, and we're with the Lamb. Listen, ultimately when it comes down to it, all this is really cool and beautiful, but the 12 foundations with the anisotropic stones and the, two, the rivers and the tree of lights, all that means nothing. Ultimately, the main idea is that we are dwelling with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit face to face in a pure, unadulterated, intimate relationship where there is no barrier of sin or evil or anything between us anymore. What makes heaven heaven is that God is there. And what makes hell hell is that God is not there. It has nothing to do with the fact that heaven is gold and mansions and gemstones or that hell is fire and torture. It has everything to do with God. And where he is, it's heaven. And where he's not, it's hell. And this is the idea that is being repeated over and over again. John wants to make you think, oh, this is really repetitive, John. We've already heard this. Yeah, but John's saying because it's the most important. And we have spent our entire life and thousands of years of history not experiencing God on earth with us face to face without sin. And this is what we've been desiring our entire life. We have not ultimately desired to go to heaven. We've desired for God to come down to earth and dwell with us face to face with no perversion between us and him. And there's no more night. There's no more chaos. There's no more sea. There's no more darkness. There's no more of those things that constantly get in the way of knowing God and knowing each other in a truly intimate, loving, sacrificial way. This is ultimately what heaven is. It's being with God. All these other things are the symptoms the byproduct of being with God. Night will be no more. They will not need the light of the lamp and the light of the sun because Yahweh, because the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. Exactly the way God wanted us. Verse 6. Then the angel said to me, these are the words are reliable and true. You can bank on this. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon happen. Look, I am coming soon. I don't think the idea is that he's literally coming soon. I think the idea is that it could happen any moment. Be ready. Blessed are the one who keeps the words of the prophecy expressed in this book. This book is revelation. Blessed are those who hold to the promises of this book that I just revealed to you doesn't mean that none of the other promises matter, but all the other promises are leading to this. The, rest, the whole Bible are the promises of God. Revelation is the fulfillment of the promises. Blessed are those who hold to the fulfillment of the promises. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I threw myself down to worship at the feet of the angel who was showing them to me. You're like, John, you already made that mistake and you were corrected. 
I think once again the idea is just like this is so glorious and awesome. There's rainbow light everywhere, gold sparkling, <coughs> pearls sparkling. Everything that is close to Jesus practically looks like him because they're so... Here's the thing. When you become intimately connected with Jesus, face to face, spending time with him, absorbing him with nothing between you and him, no sin, no death, no rebellion, you're going to become like him. You're the image of God. And when you're fully in the presence of God, you're not going to maybe be able to tell the difference between you and him. And I don't mean that literally, literally, literally. And I think what John is doing is he's never been anywhere this close to God before. He's never been anywhere close to something that this is this close to God reflecting it. And as a human, as a finite human, in a limited dimensional realm, he may have a hard time telling the difference between them sometimes. Now, when we're in the higher dimensions, fully redeemed and fully renewed in the presence of God, I doubt we're going to have a hard time knowing the difference. But we'll be good and restored and functioning the way that we are designed to function. John's not functioning the way he's designed to function. He's not good. He's limited and he's flawed. And he's trying to understand something that he's never seen before. And I think the idea is don't cut him too much. Don't harp on him too much. He just doesn't have the eyes to see the difference yet, maybe. Remember, nobody has gotten a revelation of heaven like this ever. This much detail. This close to God. But he said, do not do this. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, with those who obey the words of the book. Worship God. Then he said to me, do not, do not seal up the words of this prophecy contained in this book, because the time is near. Make sure everyone knows what has just been revealed to you. The evildoer must continue to do evil, and the one who is morally filthy must continue to be filthy. The one who is righteous must continue to act righteously, and the one who is holy must continue to be holy. I don't think the idea is, let them just keep sinning because there's no hope of them ever repenting anyways. I think the idea is that they have the opportunity to keep doing what they want to do. It's not too late yet. Let them keep doing what they want to do. But this is the revelation. And you have a choice of what you want to do. You can keep on sinning or you can keep on being righteous. Or you can switch to righteousness and continue to do that. But this revelation, if you read it and you choose to keep on doing evil, that says something about you. Listen, there is no other religious book or religion that paints any kind of picture like this yeah there's white light and shininess but there is no religion where you're dwelling with god like this even in islam which is a plagiarism of christianity in my opinion allah doesn't dwell with you even when you get to heaven allah doesn't care about you and if you read the passages of what heaven's like in the quran it looks more like a fraternity for frat boys for the rest of their life there is no religion in the entire world that gives you an intimate relationship with a higher being that loves you this much for all eternity. In light of this revelation, make your choices and keep doing what you want to do. Look, I am coming soon, verse 12, and my reward is with me to pay each one according to what he has done. I am the one who passes the rewards out. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, once again, he's the beginning and the end and everything in between. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes so they can have access to the tree of life and can enter into the city of the gates, city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So outside the kingdom of heaven in the final days are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral. I don't think he's calling humans who are unbelievers dogs. The idea is that dogs in the ancient world were they were, they were scavengers. They did not take them in pets and train them and domesticate them like we do. They were wild animals full of diseases. If you've ever been to Dominican Republic, okay, or places like that, do not touch the dogs. Every time anybody ignores that device and touches the dog, they come back very sick. They're wild, diseased, mangy, scavenger animals. And they're unclean. By referring to them as dogs, he's referring to them not in a dog like we would kind of a sense, but that they're unclean and they bring uncleanliness with them and they will stay outside the city. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Verse 16. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So he says, I am Jesus, I am the root of David. Now what's interesting is that all throughout the Bible, he is referred to as the spring, the offshoot of David. But he is also called the branch of David. But now he is also calling himself the root of David. Meaning, I'm not just the descendant that came from David that the world promised, I am the very beginning of it all. I am the origin of David, but I am also the offspring of David. I am the beginning and the end. All things come through me, and nothing exists outside of me. John chapter 1. And then he says, I am the morning star. We already talked about this. The morning star refers to the bright morning star that appeared in the sky in the morning, and then the evening star. They thought that those were two separate stars, but it's actually Venus. It represents ultimate victory, ultimate godhood. Why is Jesus calling himself? He just conquered the entire world in a way that no king ever has. He brought light to the world in a way that no king ever has. And he has brought an intimate kingdom of life and joy and peace abundantly in a way that nobody ever comes. He is the morning star. He is the light. He is the ultimate victor. Genesis 49 was the first prophecy of Christ and it predicted that a king would rise up out of Judah and his eyes will be darker than wine, his garments washed in wine, and he will tie his donkey kingship to the wine. Wine is symbolic of abundance of life and joy. His teeth will be whiter than milk, meaning they will be sweet and full of life. The first prophecy of Christ is bringing a kingdom that will flow abundantly with life and joy. The second prophecy of Christ ever was Numbers 24, verse 17. And then we're told that the morning star will rise up out of Jacob and he will carry a scepter to which he will crush the skulls of his enemies. And this is what we're seeing. Ultimately, he has fulfilled the first prophecy of Genesis 49, verse 8, 
by building a kingdom of God where we can intimately be with him with life and joy abundantly for all eternity. But outside are the defeated people who tried to burn this kingdom down to the ground. And you can only have life and joy if you have a king with a good, loving character. But you can only have life and joy with a king who's willing to justly deal with those who would seek to destroy life and joy. Both are necessary. And every prophecy begins and builds off of those two, and they ultimately find its culmination here. Verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wants to take water of life free of charge. So what he says is, the true bride of Christ says, come. We want you, Jesus. And all those who say, come, let them come. I testify to the one who hears the words of the prophecy contained in this book, Revelation. If anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share and the tree of life and the holy city are described in this book. So these prophecies should not be altered. If you intentionally add things that this book doesn't say, if you intentionally take things away from it that this book doesn't say, then you are altering and perverting and distorting and marring the image, the beautiful image of what God has for us one day, intimately dwelling with him. There were a lot of false teachers rising up. Remember, John begins the book with the idea that there are the Jews that left Judaism and became Christians, and now their family members want them to reject the divinity, divinity of Jesus and go back to Judaism. And there's also the Gentiles that have become Christians that their family members and their theology want them to reject the humanity of Jesus and go back to the deity of God's. And they're being tempted by false teachers. And the false teachers are either adding to Jesus or they're taking away from him in some way and saying, this is better, isn't it? Or this is familiar, isn't it? Come back. Satan never ever really usually makes up a completely different picture of Jesus for you to follow. He usually takes away or adds something to who Jesus is. And he usually has something to do with his nature or his sacrifice. And what God is saying is, don't you dare do this. Because if you add or take away from this, then I will add the plagues of this book and Egypt to you, and I will take away the kingdom of God from you. This is your judgment for altering my fulfillment of promises. The one who testifies these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus will be with you. The mark of the true believer's perseverance, but the mark of the true believer is also those who say, Yes, he is coming back. This is the most beautiful, amazing picture of what it will be one day. Not us dying, going to heaven, absent of our body, while we watch the entire planet get destroyed by God. But God coming back to this world, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, restoring us back to our bodies, restoring us back to our good function without sin, restoring the planet back to its life and joy abundantly, and restoring God himself back to the planet so we can dwell with him. 
ultimately speaking, what you have just read and seen is a picture of a relationship. Heaven is not ultimately a place. It is a place. The kingdom of God coming to earth is a thing. It is real. It is literal. It is eternal. It is good. But ultimately, at its core foundation, is an intimate relationship with God, face-to-face, unperverted, unadulterated, and everything is good. And we will pick up where we left off, and we will begin to continue to expand the Garden of Eden. And we will have acceptance and a face-to-face relationship with God. We will have a security in Him that there will be no more sin ever entering in or death or chaos. And we will have a purpose as the leaves of the trees heal the nations. In conclusion, the main focus of Revelation is the lion lamb is coming to establish his kingdom on earth. First, by judging the world systems for the rebellion and misuse of power, destroying its power structures and influences over the world and eliminating all evil. Then heaven and earth will be reunited when Yahweh, the lion lamb, and the kingdom of Yahweh come to earth and dwell with the covenant people of Yahweh forever as material and spiritual beings. The focal points of Revelation are Revelation 4 through 5 with the enthronement of Yahweh and Jesus and Revelation 21 through 22 with the kingdom of Yahweh coming down to earth and redeeming creation and humanity. Revelation 6 through 20 is the judgment of humanity for rejecting the sovereign throne of the Godhead and his coming kingdom. Throughout this revelation, John urges the believers to maintain moral separation from the world and to remain faithful to Jesus Christ as the God-man, even to death, and to bear faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus in the midst of a compromising, idolatrous church and world. Their refusal to take the mark of the beast and their perseverance in expanding the kingdom of Yahweh are the fruit testifying that they have been sealed by the blood of the Lamb and will dwell with the Godhead on the redeemed earth for all eternity. Yahweh, we praise you. Oh, we praise you for who you are as an absolutely merciful, loving God who brings us joy and life. We also praise you that you are an absolutely just God who will deal with evil because you love us. You love us, and so you create intimacy with us. And you love us, and so you remove everything that hinders intimacy. And we pray that in all this, this would lead us to an ultimate understanding that ultimately it is a relationship with you. From the very, very, very beginning, you've made it clear that you desire relationships more than anything else. And that ultimately sin is what hinders an intimate relationship with you. And you promised us through Christ that we would be able to remain in you and you remain in us. And now you are fulfilling this in Revelation. I pray that this would be our orientation, that we would be centered on Christ who is in us and oriented towards the kingdom of God and your will coming down to earth. And that this would be our focus, so that we would be able to persevere to the end, no matter how hard the suffering, no matter how great the trial, no matter how depressing things get, that we will be oriented and directed towards this fulfillment of your promise. We thank you that you are a God 
unlike any other God that actually provides us for us, offers us to us, promises this to us, and makes it happen. Give us the ability to persevere to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.